Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer View is Joey Coleman. He is a recovering trial lawyer, but that's not why I'm so delighted when he agreed to be on the podcast. When organizations like Whirlpool, Deloitte, Volkswagen Australia, Trek Bikes, Principal Financial, and Zappos need to boost their customer experience, they call on Joey Coleman for assistance. He's the creator of the first 100 days, a system designed to dramatically increase your customer attention and as a result, your law firm's bottom line. And I'll read a little bit about his bio. He's a recognized expert in customer experience design and is an award-winning speaker of both national and international conferences. He works with organizations ranging from small startups that are fresh off the kitchen table to large Fortune 500s with hundreds of mid-sized businesses in between. Prior to starting his business, Joey developed his narrative skills as a criminal defense trial attorney, honed his communication and messaging skills at the White House, and did things for the U.S. Secret Service and the CIA that he can't talk about publicly. His book, Never Lose a Customer Again, debuted as number two on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list and is being used as a playbook for creating remarkable experiences in organizations around the world. Today, he's excited to share strategies and techniques that will help your law firm create the remarkable customer experience that will keep your clients coming back to you and singing your praises to their families and friends. Joey, welcome to Trial Lawyer View. I am delighted to have you as a guest, and I appreciate you joining me today. Oh, Jason, thanks so much for the kind introduction, for the invitation, and thanks to everybody else who's listening in today. Super excited about our conversation. So I received your book as a gift from your wonderful wife and one of my best salespeople, my wife, getting the book out there for me. So kind. Exactly. I I read it and I immediately gave it to our chief revenue officer who read it, was thrilled with the concepts in it. And then we basically said, let's form a book club and the first book for our leadership team to devour was this book. And actually we we were supposed to have a, a session this morning, but too many people were sick, so we, we moved it to next week, but we're on the adopt uh, phase. So uh, it's been a really, really incredible experience to do it together with our team to talk about all the ways that this book could help us deliver customer experience that's incredible for the law firms that we work with. 
Well, I'm so glad to hear that. You know, one of the fun things, Jason, when I was putting the book together, there are lots of reasons somebody might write a book, right? Uh, To capture their legacy, to get their ideas out in the world, to drive new business. What I wanted to do is raise the bar on customer experience and client experience globally. Every single person listening has been a customer of dozens, if not hundreds of businesses today today alone. And when I ask people whether they're in an audience or in a workshop I'm leading, you know, tell me about some of the experiences you've had. As a general rule, they're quick to talk about the negative experiences they've had, mainly because we seem to have more of those than positive experiences. So if your law firm is willing to focus in on creating a remarkable positive client experience, we have the opportunity to shift the conversation and maybe move away from everybody has a favorite lawyer joke to everybody has a favorite amazing lawyer story, which I think would be good for the profession and all of us. So Joey, you're a a recovering attorney. I'm curious why you went to law school and then why did you leave the practice ultimately. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Jason. You know, I I joke that I'm a recovering attorney and, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem and there's 11 steps after that. But the reality is I always knew I wanted to go to law school. I grew up the son of a criminal defense lawyer, uh, trial attorney. My first time in the courtroom was in sixth grade. I was a courier in a federal court criminal case and I worked for my dad through high school and in college and even in law school. So I always knew that the law school education, the legal education, that way of thinking, that approach to rhetoric was a skill set that I wanted to develop and have. Went to law school, actually had an enjoy. I know I'm going to shock a lot of listeners with this statement, had an enjoyable experience in law school. And I give a lot of credit to my dad for that experience because as we were driving to law school, he said to me, you know, son, the people who get A's go on to become law professors. The people who get B's go on to become judges. And the people who get C's and D's go on to rule the world. And so there was a lot less pressure than the typical law student has of, oh, you got to make law review and get great grades. Uh, I still tried my best, but I didn't have that same level of, I think, uh, 1L angst that a lot of law students have. I loved practicing law, Jason. I worked in, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, for the Secret Service, for the White House, for the CIA, as a lawyer in all of those capacities. I was a criminal defense lawyer for about five years uh, working in my dad's practice. I did some contract work for large law firms in antitrust cases and kind of document review type cases and some plaintiff's work as well. And while I enjoyed being a lawyer, I found something that I liked doing even more, which was being in business and being an entrepreneur. So I didn't leave the law because I hated it. I left the law because I found something that I enjoyed even more. That's funny. I um, I, I, I had a similar experience in law school in that I absolutely loved the law school environment and the experience other than the the kind of hyper competitiveness in, in the 1L year and, and some of the fear when your grade boiled down to what you could write in a blue book, um, you know, after a whole semester of sitting in class. But, um, you know, the, the idea of learning about the law and the experience of learning the law in law school was actually a, a pretty awesome experience for me, too. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's people ask me all the time, Jason, do you regret going to law school because you don't use your law degree anymore? And I was like, folks, I use my law degree every day. 
You know, whether that's writing, whether that's speaking, whether that's reviewing contracts. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have lawyers who do work for my business, but the first pass on any contract I do myself and I kind of kick back and forth with the client a couple of times to get something that we're happy with. And then if we need to involve actually qualified, you know, barred attorneys in the conversation to approve a contract or something like that, I certainly get them involved. But I feel like it's a really versatile education that I would frankly recommend to anybody who's thinking about business or any type of career that requires either logical thinking, persuasive writing, or persuasive speech. Yeah, 100%. All of the skills I learned in law school, I use every day. And I, I still have a law practice that's outside of my my company synergy. But, you know, all of those skills, I think, are incredibly um, important to have at your fingertips in, in business. So I, I don't regret it. Although it, it leads me into my next question. My, my law school had a dual JD MBA degree, which I wish I had done because law school just doesn't teach you how to be a business person or anything about, you know, client relations and communications. And, and I don't understand why there isn't more education on those issues for specific to law firms, either in law school or really even after law school. Uh, Maybe there's a book in there that we need to write together. I don't know. Um, But given that most personal injury law firms thrive on recommendations from previous clients, probably, you know, most live and die by referrals. What what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, it blew my mind in law school to the point where I was actually having conversations with the administration on more than one occasion and not just because of my GPA. I mean, I was actually going to them to have conversations about why don't we teach the equivalent of bedside manner? You know, if you go to medical school, invariably you have at least one at most med schools now class on bedside manner. Where is the equivalent of that in the legal education? Where is the equivalent of teamwork? I mean, the closest thing I experienced in law school around teamwork was being on the moot court team or the mock trial team. When you get out into practice, it's very rare that you are the only person on the case from your firm. You might be working with paralegals, with research assistants, with, you know, a client relationship manager, a senior partner, a junior partner, four other associates, whatever it may be. There's not a lot of modeling of that teamwork or that behavior in the law school environment either. So I think there's a real opportunity to teach that. I think there's a thirst for it amongst students. I know a lot of students uh, certainly want to go work for, quote unquote, the big law firm and earn the big dollars. But let's be candid. There's only so many seats for those positions. Most lawyers are going to end up working with other lawyers. They're not going to hang out their own shingle, but we might as well teach them how to do that and how to have those skills. I'm not exactly sure that an MBA program, at least most MBA programs, would give you that education, but I do think there's an opportunity to have the business side of law be a bigger part of the curriculum. Yeah, and I mean, you know, because ultimately I've gone down more of an alternative career path and everything I do is business related. So the MBA really, I I think it is more that idea of marrying the business side of practicing law with the legal education, because, you know, most lawyers, if they do wind up in their own practices or in a partnership, they're running a business. And, you know, there's just not a lot of foundation that you get for 
what's going to come at you when you're running a business when you're in law school. Absolutely. Even the the practicalities, I remember very clearly uh, when I was, I took a couple different bar exams, but one of the bar exams I took, one of the essay questions was, here's a fact pattern, write a letter to the client explaining what happens next. Okay. Something that everyone listening who practices law has had to do. I don't know about you, Jason. We never did that as a homework assignment in law school. We never even did anything close to that. I mean, the closest thing we probably had is like for the law review competition, write a memo to the senior partner about the facts of this case. There was very little discussion of how do you actually communicate with people who don't have a law degree, who are going to be completely overwhelmed by any legalese or discussion of procedure that you might put into a letter or a communication, and more importantly, how are you going to create the opportunity for connection and empathy with the client? Let's talk, if I may, briefly about personal injury cases, okay? You are dealing with a client who is probably experiencing the greatest level of pain, suffering, and angst that they have ever experienced in their life with most PI claims. Not all, but many, if not most. Compare that to the fact that the typical trial attorney in the United States, and I don't know if this applies specifically to personal injury plaintiff's attorneys, but these I know are the statistics for the typical trial attorney, has at any given time 40 to 60 active client cases. Okay? So let's just pretend to make the math really, really simple because I'm not that good at math. That's why I went to law school, that you have 60 Okay, and we've got 60, which means give or take five per month that you're going to be paying attention to. But we all know that the typical case lasts much longer than a month. What are you doing to not have your clients feel like a number, to have them feel in the communications with them that you empathize and sympathize where they're at physically, emotionally, mentally, when your thought is, I got to write this letter so that I can get on to the next eight letters I need to write, so I can make time for this pretrial conference, so I can get this depot in, so I can be in court next week, so I can manage the relationship with my employees, so I can try to be a decent parent or spouse. You know, there are so many things going on that disconnect us from any type of an emotional connection with our client that I would posit if that isn't a systemic aspect of our practice and of our communications and of the way we interact with our staff and the way we teach and train them, we're going to have a huge breakdown. And it's no wonder that I think in pretty much every jurisdiction in the United States, the number one bar complaint that a lawyer has to deal with is failure to effectively communicate with the client and keep them informed about what's going on in their case. We see those kinds of claims in every jurisdiction across the country. Why? Well, I think it's because we don't teach people how to do it, even when they're out of law school. Most law firms, frankly, don't do a good job of this. That's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about next, which is that this, you know, the, the biggest complaint is typically in a PI case, poor communication from the law firm to their client. So, you know, using the frameworks that you've created or just your experience, how can a personal injury law firm 
effectively make sure that the client is treated in a way that makes them feel valued. And in, in doing my research for this this podcast episode, I, I heard you talk about the ABA study on communication delays and how, how does that all play into all of this in trying to make sure ultimately that the client gets the right feeling because their experience is going to be tied largely to how they feel. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's be candid, Jason. I, I want to reiterate that final part of your statement you just made. How a client evaluates their relationship with you, how they talk about you to their friends, to their colleagues, to potential referrals that they might make, more than 50% of that is going to be based on how they feel. There were times where when I, I did some personal injury work, but I also did a lot of criminal defense. There were times where my clients were found guilty, went to prison, and still were loyal, faithful advocates for me, even though they'd ended up in prison. That's a huge consequence because they felt that I cared. They felt that I was looking out for them. They felt that I looked out for their families when they were serving their time. The reality is we have an opportunity to communicate with our clients using a variety of different modes and methodologies, but how many of them are we actually using? I posit in my book and in my presentations that there are six key communication tools you can use to interact with your clients. There's in-person interactions, there's emails, physical mail, snail mail, sending letters, phone calls, video, so whether that's Zoom or a video message or a FaceTime, and then gifts and presents. For the purpose of your question, let's narrow it to the first five because gifts and presents are important, but not necessarily as tied to the emotional connection they're having in a communication setting. As I went through those tools, in-person, email, mail, phone, video, ask yourself, listeners, which one of those are you best at? Which one of those do you over-index on or default to, which one of those does your client actually want? Now, here's what I know from my experience with lawyers and clients. Most lawyers feel like they're already spending too much time on the phone. They're trying to systematize things to free up opportunities for scale and to have communications come from the firm that aren't directly from them. So emails, letters, that type of thing over in-person and phone calls. What does the typical client want in person and phone calls? So how do we balance that feeling between what the client wants and what we're practically able to do in terms of our time? Well, I think there's two key ways to do that. Number one, as soon as possible, we need to get our clients introduced to the other people on our team so that they feel like a communication from one of our team members is just as valuable as the communication from the lawyer. It made me tickled pink when my clients would say, Joey, I almost like talking to your assistant more than I like talking to you. And I was like, that's great. I love that. And my assistant would get awarded and compensated accordingly because that's what I wanted to happen. I didn't want to always have to have it hinge on could they reach me because I was in the courtroom four days out of the week. So number one, we got to get our teams involved. Number two, are you asking your clients at the very beginning, and then checking in throughout the duration of the case. What is your preferred way for me to update you, and how often do you want updates? Most lawyers are terrified to ask those two questions, Jason, because they're afraid the person's going to say, I want a personal phone call every hour of every day. 
let's be candid. If that is the type of client, don't you want to know that in the first meeting? I certainly do, because guess what? I'm sorry, our docket is full. We're not going to be able to represent you if that's your expectation and what you want. Instead, what happens is we spend all this time selling the client on why working with us is going to be in their best interest. And then what do we do? We hit them with a gigantic homework assignment. I'm going to need all your medical records, all your communication, the journal you kept. Oh, you didn't keep a journal? Start keeping a journal today. Telling me how you're feeling, how you're thinking. I need your spouse to keep a journal about what it's like to interact with you. I need your kids to chime in with their thoughts about what it's like to interact with you post-accident or post-injury. We stack up this huge amount of homework, and then we say, oh, and by the way, this case is going to take a minimum of two years. If we're smart, that's what we tell them. We manage their expectation immediately that this is going to take longer than they want it to. Most lawyers aren't even doing that bare minimum, Jason. And that's why I get so amped up when I work with law firms. I'm like, look, this is low-hanging fruit, friends. This is not rocket surgery, as they would say right? This is coming in and figuring out how do we message to our clients? How do we communicate with them? And try to, how do we try to personalize and customize the interactions as much as possible that it changes the feeling that they're having and elicits the kind of remarkable interactions and positive feelings that I know we all want to give our clients, but we're just not getting done. You said something earlier that I wanted to touch on before we, we dive more deeply into the book. Um, and it, it ties into um, what I perceive as our views being aligned that personal injuries are intensely personal. Uh, and as someone who is significantly injured by someone else, I know it was for me. So how do personal injury lawyers use your framework and try and build that empathy? Because you mentioned that. That was what really, you know, what called to me because it's something that I really preached to our team, the empathy that they need to feel for the lawyers that we're working with and ultimately for the injury victims. But how do lawyers make sure that they're building that into their practices? Because I can guarantee you that at least if, if most personal injury victims' experiences are like mine, that's going to be incredibly important is feeling like there there's some empathy and, and maybe – you know, sometimes, you know, empathy is hard because you really have to step into somebody else's shoes, but maybe it's more compassionate, you know, handling of the case, realizing what someone's going through after they've been injured significantly. Yeah, Jason, I think that, how shall I put this? I think the majority of the humans on the planet would benefit greatly from studying practicing and experiencing and living more empathy in their life. There are things we can do to train ourselves to be more empathetic. There are things we can do to practice empathy in our interactions with our fellow humans. Something as simple as when you're driving to work and somebody cuts you off and you want to wave to them with only one of your five fingers, okay? As you feel yourself feeling that rage come up or that irritation or that anger, what I always do, and I practice this with my two boys. I've got two young boys, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. And when we're in the car and if somebody cuts us off, we talk about that. I say, what could that person be dealing with right now? 
Maybe they're racing to the hospital to try to get there before their parent dies because they've gotten that dreaded call. Maybe they're racing to the hospital because their passenger is about to give birth. Maybe their boss told them that if they were late one more time, they're fired and they can't afford to lose this job. Maybe they were just busy and distracted and didn't even see us. When we run through all those potential scenarios for what it could have been, instead of immediately jumping to the one that they decided to harm me, to ruin my day by cutting me off, we practice trying to see the world from somebody else's shoes. One of the things that I did in law school that was a really incredible exercise, a friend facilitated this at a meeting of the uh, law student division of the American Bar Association. We did a session on uh, empathy where we tried to experience what would it be like to have some conditions that somebody might experience in a personal injury case. So we came in and they had fake cast and we put on fake cast and had to spend the day either on crutches or with an arm in a cast. We even did some things around blindness where somebody had to wear a blindfold, like a sleeping mask, the entire session. We did different things that were designed to have us feel it. And I often thought, how great would that be in a personal injury law firm to bring your team together for the company retreat? And instead of having, and I say this respectfully, yet another boring presentation that people aren't going to listen to or be excited about because they really want to get to the buffet or to the pool outside or to whatever it is, we said, for the next hour, we're going to try to feel what it's like to be one of our clients. And here's, this, here's what you have to put on, you know, the clothing to feel like them or a, or a fake cast or a mask or something that allows you to closely, not 100%, but closely approximate what the other person is going through. Or if we really want to step it up to the next level, what if they got an envelope and they opened that envelope and it had the name of the person, someone in their immediate family who had just died in a car accident? And we encouraged them to feel what they would feel in this moment to get a phone call that said, guess what? That person's gone. You had the last conversation and you didn't know you were having the last conversation. And are you happy with the last conversation? The reality is we get so caught up in our businesses and I understand and I respect that. And I'm guilty of it too, that we disconnect from the personal nature of a personal injury claim and what someone is experiencing. Yeah, I, um, each month we do a mission moment for our entire team where we go through the facts of the case that, you know, was the underlying claim and talk about, you know, how we were able to positively impact. But that idea of trying to create some connection in people's minds around what people have gone through, you know, I, I, I wonder how many law firms take the opportunity to even go through the facts of each case with their team. So their team, even the receptionist understands, Hey, this, you know, this person is enduring something that is, you know, life altering, life changing. Cause you know, typically speaking, it is. I mean, unless it's something very minor, I know, I mean, I had significant injuries, but you know, long-term I'm, I'm, I'm okay. 
but it altered my life for sure, you know, mentally, physically too. I mean, those things are things that people are experiencing in real time. Uh, and on top of that, adding the litigation stress to it, it it's just, it is a, a, a thing that unless you've been through it, it's hard to really understand it, but trying to give life to it is, is what we try to do here to make sure that our team understands the responsibility they have. Jason, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I often try to think of how often is my minor their major and how often is their minor my major and vice versa. And so what can we do to actually understand what they're going through, what they're experiencing? And if if doing this with clients, let me let me give a little caveat here because I imagine some of the people that are listening are like, "Joey, this feels invasive. This feels too personal. I'm not really sure that we should be, you know, uh, having our staff and our employees kind of have this level of knowledge or capacity or kind of in you know kind of uh, insight to all the fine details of the kit. We got them. They got to do the work. They can't just be sitting with a box of Kleenex and crying. Great, fine. Let's presume that that's true. I personally would disagree, but let's presume hypothetically that's true. What are the top three issues that each of the members of your firm are dealing with right now in their personal or professional lives? If I were to ask you to make a list of all the associates, all the partners, all the receptionists, the paralegals, everybody who works in your firm, and I was ask you to write down the one or two top issues that are causing angst, pain, sadness, stress, strife in their life, how many of those could you answer? The typical law firm, we could maybe do it for, you know, the two or three people we're closest to. But when we got further away, especially with a larger firm, we have no clue. If we don't know what our receptionist's biggest problem is, if you're the receptionist and you don't know what the senior partner's biggest problem is, how the hell are we supposed to have empathy for the 200-plus clients we're serving when we don't even have empathy for the people that we sit in the same office with every day? Not that I have any strong opinions on this, but... I think there's just an opportunity for every one of us to try to bring a little more compassion, bring a little more empathy, bring a little more care, even to our personal lives, even to our interactions with ourselves, because the ripple effect for that in our practice will not only make us better lawyers and will not only make us better humans, but for those of you that are more concerned about the bottom line, it will make you more money because you will grow to have a reputation of being a firm that cares and that is like the ultimate magnet for client referrals, especially in the personal injury space. In uh, the book, you gave an example of a dental practice. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could take that example and apply it to a personal injury practice. Uh, ironically, after I was hit by a car while cycling, I had to have a tunnel, ton of dental work and I was lucky enough to have a very close friend who was a dental implant surgeon who made it as good of an experience as it possibly could be. But I think people view visiting lawyers probably similar to how they view visiting a dentist. So it just, this, this construct appealed to me to ask you about that and how might a lawyer learn from that example? Oh, Jason, I love this question. I love this question. So yeah, let's look at it. When you ask the typical person, 
Where would you not like to spend time? High on their list is going to be the lawyer's office, the doctor's office, the dentist's chair. Those are going to be pretty high on the maybe the accountant's office is going to be like a, a, a ancillary fourth one but those are going to be the top choices now what do we know about all of those professions these are professions that are highly educated that part of the way you succeed in this profession is by knowing more than the average layperson about your area of expertise or work you are highly compensated for your work and you usually deal with people who are in a state that is not their normal state what I mean by that is they are either sick or injured or facing a lawsuit or any number of things that is not their normal way of being. And yet, for all of those professions, this is day-to-day -day life for them. What are we going to do to address that? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, when someone comes into your practice... They are going to be in a situation, most likely, I'd say nine times out of ten, where they know they need help. They know they need someone to advocate for them, and they're not sure who they should pick, but they know that this selection process is going to potentially impact the rest of their life in the same way that the accident impacted their life. So let's just start with the fact that they, when they come in for an initial consult, they are terrified about making the wrong decision. Now we think, oh, we're going to talk to them about how communicative we are and maybe depending on the jurisdiction you are, how much familiarity you have with these types of cases or these type of claims. Maybe in some jurisdictions you're allowed to speak to your success rate or some of the outcomes you've achieved for other clients. But in some jurisdictions, you're not allowed to even talk about that. So what are you going to do to convince them that they will be seen and heard when they deal with you? What are we doing to make sure that they understand that this injury that most likely occurred in under one minute, if we look at the typical injury, the actual intervening cause, the car accident, falling down the stairs, you know, burning themselves with the hot coffee, whatever it may be, probably happened in under 60 seconds. And yet this is going to be something that at the very least they have to deal with for months, if not years, if not the rest of their life. Let's just stop there. If we can figure out the answers to those two things, their fear and the reality of the duration of time, especially around something that most likely they did very little to bring upon themselves, maybe they did in some cases, but in many cases they didn't, how are we going to meet and interact with that? The advice that I would give is, number one, make it as smooth as possible to do business with you. Make it as clear as possible as to what they can expect at each interaction. And most importantly, and this is where I, and I say this respectfully because I used to do this when I was a lawyer and fail at it. I should be able to call every single one of your clients and ask them, what is the next thing that is going to happen in your case? Is the next thing a deposition? Is the next thing a hearing? Is the next thing trial? Is the next thing a settlement conference? I should be able to ask any client at any given point, 
what comes next. Because here's the thing. When you explain that in the first meeting, and you, even if you're one of these, even if you're a great lawyer, and the folks listening to this awesome podcast are certainly great lawyers, and you do a great job of setting out the expectation, and here's the process of how we go through the court system, and here's how we'll be negotiating with the insurance company, and here's what happens if we have to go to trial, and here's what happens if there's a jury or a judge, and we kind of explain that. The door has not closed on your office before they've forgotten what comes next. That's not because you're a bad communicator. That's not because you didn't do a good job explaining it. It's not because you weren't clear. It's because they are stressed. They are emotional. They are dealing with a personal injury. I'm going to meet you in that, Jason. I'm going to underline that personal and injury. So every time you communicate, if, you, if the listeners on the show did only one thing, to dramatically change their client experience, their client reviews, and the amount of referrals they get, it would be this. Do not let a communication with a client end. An in-person meeting, an email, a phone call, a voicemail, a letter that you send without having the final paragraph be, and by the way, the next time you'll hear from us or the next thing that's going to happen is XYZ, if you only did that, you would dramatically improve the experience you're delivering to your clients. So can you talk about the eight phases of customer experience from your book, which are assess, admit, affirm, activate, acclimate, accomplish, adopt, and advocate in the context of a PI law firm and what it might look like for a firm that does it exceptionally well, or, or maybe what should they start doing that they aren't doing today? And, and particularly with, and we run into this challenge, with the length of the acclimate phase and how long it can take to accomplish given PI cases can last years. Um, that That's, to me, part of the challenge of this. I mean, I think you've talked about a lot of things, but maybe bringing it all together. Absolutely. What I'd love to do, Jason, is I'm going to give a whirlwind overview of the eight phases just to give people some context, and then we'll dive into each one as it applies in a personal injury context. So phase one, the first phase of every client is the assess phase. Oh, and by the way, all of these phases start with the letter A, the idea being that if you get all of these phases right, it's like getting straight A's on your report card from your clients. They love everything you're doing. All right. Phase one, the assess phase. This is when a prospective client is trying to decide whether or not they want you to represent them. They're checking out your website. They're maybe talking to other friends to get a referral. They're checking out your marketing materials. They might even be having a preliminary conversation with you or kind of an initial consult to figure out, is this the person who I want to handle my case? Phase two is the admit phase. This is when the prospect decides that they want to become a client. They admit that they have a problem or a need that they believe you can help them with. They sign on the dotted line. They hand over their hard-earned cash, whether that's giving a retainer or signing a retainer agreement or signing some type of a, a compensation agreement. They then go to phase three, the affirm stage. Now, this is probably one of the top two stages that gets overlooked by law firms the most. The affirm stage, in common parlance, is the buyer's remorse stage. When the new client begins to doubt the decision they just made to hire you, 
This starts to kick in. The brain science tells us the minute they exit your office and runs until the next substantive interaction they have with you or your team. Okay. Most firms are doing nothing in the affirm stage to reaffirm the choice that the client just made. We then come to phase four, the activate stage. The activate stage is the first real moment of truth where we kick the relationship off. This could be bringing them in for a full-blown interview. This could be coming in to refute their documents. This is whatever is going to be that kind of first real moment where there's a key interaction between you and the client where they get to see, are you all that you were cracked up to be, that you were promised to be in the sales process? We then come to phase five, and you hinted at it beautifully, Jason, the acclimate phase, okay? In the acclimate phase, you're trying to get the client familiar with your cadence of doing business and, more importantly, the practical realities of moving a claim through the legal system. This is going to be long, and no matter how many times you tell them it's going to be long, they're going to wish it was shorter. Heck, we wish it was shorter, right? The attorneys wish it was shorter. Of course, the clients wish it was shorter as well. What are you doing in each step of that process to hold their hand and let them know what comes next? We then come to phase six, the accomplish phase. This is when the client achieves the goal they had when they originally decided to hire you. Now, pro tip here, and we'll dive into this more later, the typical lawyer thinks that the accomplish phase for every client is a settlement or a verdict. Now, for some it is, but for many, there's a mini accomplishment just feeling like they're with the right lawyer, just feeling they're with somebody who will advocate for them or will look out for them or will listen to them or will care about them at this incredibly stressful and painful time in their life. We then come to phase seven, the adopt phase. This is when the client becomes loyal to you and only you. They're bought into your theory of the case. They're bought into the way we're going about it. They're bought into the process. They have as much ownership stake in our approach for handling their case as we do in coming up with our approach for handling their case. And last but not least, the advocate phase. Okay, the holy grail, phase eight, the nirvana, the thing we're all trying for. When the client becomes a zealous advocate for you as a lawyer, they're referring their friends, their family, their coworkers, anybody they know that needs a personal injury lawyer, they're immediately going to say, have I got the person for you? And not only are they going to refer, but they're going to make sure that referral happens. They're going to do an introduction. They're going to share emails or phone numbers. They're going to become an active salesperson for your business. Those are the eight phases. And if we do it right, this cycle repeats because as they advocate to have new people join the firm or come to us with their cases, those new people go back to the assess phase and we walk the new people through the same eight phase journey. So those are the eight phases. Before I jump in and apply it very specifically to personal injury attorneys, any questions or thoughts on that, Jason, or should we just dive in? No, dive in because, right. you know. You got to read the book to really <laughs> dive into that. So, but I, I, I'm really more curious about how you apply that specific to personal injury law firms to help them. And I think that's what our listeners would love to hear. Love it. Love it. Okay. So the assess phase, what are you doing to let people know that hiring your firm, hiring you as a lawyer is better 
than the other people whose billboards they've seen, bus advertisements they've seen, commercials they've heard, what other ways there are for people to get exposure to who a potential personal injury lawyer is. Without casting any dispersions on the industry in this particular aspect of lawyers, we've all been around the block to know enough that in the scope of attorneys, personal injury lawyers and criminal defense lawyers probably have some of the lowest reputations in society. Not because necessarily of how they practice law, although there's plenty that are kind of in the field that are doing this. I mean, I remember sitting in law school, seeing some of my classmates stand up and answering questions and thinking, this is why people hate lawyers, because you people are driving me crazy and I'm not even a client of yours, right? So I understand we have that challenge, but more importantly, the very nature of the problem that has brought them to your office is of a higher stress factor, a higher pain factor, a higher emotional worry than most other areas of the law. So how are you showing empathy? How are you creating opportunities for them on that first visit, whether it's to your website, to your office for an initial consult, or an initial phone call? What are you doing to show sympathy and empathy? Sympathy being how are you showing them that you feel sad for what they're going through, empathy showing that you're not just judging what they're going through, that you actually physically feel it. You know what it's like to stand in their shoes. How are you outlining what it is that is going to give the person a feeling, a preview of what it's going to be like to be your client? We then come to phase two, the admit phase. Now, here's what usually happens in a PI firm on the admit phase. We get everybody to the close. We're feeling really good about it. And we say, and by the way, how are we going to pay for all this? Well, good news to you. You're not going to have to pay a penny. You're just going to sign this agreement that says, I'm going to get 20%, 33%, 40%, 50%. Fill in the number. I don't care what your contingency plan or compensation plan is, but you're going to say that's what it's going to be. And then you're going to slide across the table, probably, a boilerplate contract that you haven't read in years and hand them a pen and ask them to sign away a portion of whatever they're going to get. Now, some of us think, <clears throat> I'm getting all choked up even just thinking about this. Some of us think that, oh, well, this is a really good deal. They don't have to pay anything. They should be happy that they don't have to pay anything. If that thought process is crossing your mind, respectfully, I ask you to excuse yourself from the meeting, go into the bathroom at your firm, and slap yourself into the reality that they didn't sign up for any of this. They didn't expect to be here. And while I get that you're not going to be pounding onto their physical injury with a financial injury of making them pay an hourly rate or pay all your expenses, we need to disconnect from the fact that we think we're doing them a favor by taking their case on a contingency. That's not the way they're seeing it. They're seeing it as on that billboard I saw, it said that the last person in a motorcycle accident got $9 million. They just told me that they want 40% of my case. Huh. That means if I get $9 million, they're going to get $3.6 million for 
for just being my lawyer? That's offensive. But that's not what's going through our mind. But if we have empathy and we try to step into their shoes, that could be what's going through theirs. Next, phase three, the affirm stage. They leave your office. What are you doing? You're getting up. You're maybe going to your paralegals. Hey, here we've got the medical release. We've got this. Start the filing. Put in our representation. Boom, boom, boom. Let's get the files. Let's get them in for an interview. I want to talk to their doctors. I want to get the notes. Got to get the x-rays from them. Bum, 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 bum. And we start doing the work. Does the client have any idea that's happening? Does the client have any idea the speed or the urgency that you're bringing to the table? Does the client have any feel about the volume of things that are actually going to start happening almost immediately after they leave the office? Or are we saying, hey, we landed another client. All right. The practice is growing, feeling good. We got more work for folks. We're two years out from a payday, but nonetheless, we're making progress. What are you doing to affirm that decision? Are you taking the time to send them a video? thanking them for trusting you? Are you taking the time to write a handwritten personal note that says, we know you're going through one of the worst times of your life right now. Please know that we're here for you. We're available. Here's my personal cell phone number. Are we sending them something that says, here are all the other people in the firm? Are we even before they leave the office, walking them around to all the other members of the team and saying, hey, you might be getting a call from Dave. Let me introduce you to Dave. You might be getting an email from Juanita. Let me introduce you to Juanita. Are we trying to show the personal nature of our practice while they're still in the room, while they're in that affirm stage, or are we just letting them go on their merry way? We then come to the activate stage, that first real moment of truth, okay? It depends on your practice. It depends on when they come to you, what that first real moment of truth is, but chances are better than not. It's some type of a deposition or an interview or an initial claim, or maybe the first meeting with, um, you know, the first offer that comes from the insurance company. I don't know what it is. And again, it depends on the practice, but are you making that first moment of truth magical? Are you making it special? Are you making it remarkable? Are you recognizing where they are mentally, physically, emotionally, and taking that into account? Are you recognizing that the night before that first thing, they're sweating bullets? Are you reaching out to remind them that, hey, tomorrow we've got to be there at 9 a.m.? Or are you personally calling and saying, hey, I know it's after dinner. I know we're meeting tomorrow at 9 a.m. Super excited to see you. What questions do you have? What are you worried about? Talk to me. Can you put me on speaker so I can talk to your spouse? Are the kids in the room? Are they anxious? How can I help you be ready for tomorrow? Beyond the things you've already done to prepare them. I know this takes time. I know this takes effort. But guess what? Sorry, friends. You signed up to be a lawyer. That's part of the profession. That's part of the job. If you don't want to do it, consider a different profession. Okay, we then come to the acclimate phase, right? Phase five, the acclimate phase. Now, this is where we get into a cadence. There's emails going back and forth. There's letters. There's demands. There's counteroffers. There's all kinds of things happening. As I alluded to earlier, what are you doing to make sure that your client knows at every step of the way how far we've come, where we are, and what comes next? Are you letting them know where the inflection points are? where we're going to have to make some decisions? Are you letting them know where some of the minor decisions could turn into a major decision depending on which path they take? 
Are you giving them advice? Are you giving them suggestions? Are you giving them the opportunity to think about it, to consult? Or are you just saying, hey, well, here's what's happened, and next thing that's going to happen is this, and uh, I'll be back to you in touch with 30 days once we hear back from them. We then come to the accomplish phase. Now, in the accomplish phase, in a personal injury case, we have multiple points of accomplishment, okay? And we should pre-frame the client about this in the very first meeting, and we should remind them of it throughout the acclimate phase. Actually getting a demand letter off is a mini accomplishment. Actually getting a first settlement offer from the insurance company is a mini accomplishment. Actually getting a counter offer and a second offer and all that. These are all little mini milestones. We should be marking these with the client. We should be celebrating with these with the client, even if they're not coming in at the dollar amounts that we think they should. Even if we get a lowball initial offer from the insurance company, we should be celebrating that. You know why? Because now we have a starting point. We know that we're moving the ball forward. We know we're moving the process forward. And what are we doing to acknowledge those accomplishments? Then we come to the adopt phase. What do we do when the client becomes loyal to us? When we've got a client who's loyal, they're committed, we're feeling good, are we thanking them for their trust? Or are we taking them for granted? Are we writing them a note at the one-year anniversary when it's going to be a three-year process, thanking them for all their trust in the first year and letting them know that we're a third of the way to the finish line and we appreciate the fact that they're still working and we want them to know that we're still working and we're still as committed as we were on day one? We then come to the advocate phase when they actually make a referral. Now, here's the crazy thing about most lawyers. Most lawyers' practices live and die based on referrals. Most lawyers are absolutely pathetic at acknowledging the referrals they get. Now, I understand before everybody gets up in arms about, well, Joe, you don't understand the Bar Association of my jurisdiction. We can't compensate referrals. We can't. You know what? I've yet to meet a jurisdiction. And if this applies to you, please reach out to me, joey at joeycoleman.com, and let me know so I'm not speaking ill or wrong of the legal system. To my knowledge, there is no prohibition from writing a handwritten thank you note to a client for making a referral to you where you effusively appreciate their trust, their word of mouth, and their willingness to put their own reputation on the line with someone that they know, love, or trust. And yet, the majority of lawyers don't even do that. The majority of lawyers say, well, we, we, I can't give them a referral fee. I can't give them some cash. So, sorry, Bar Association tied my hands. Stop it. We can do better. We can do better as humans, let alone as lawyers and professionals. So what are we doing in the advocate phase? What are we doing to thank the other people that might advocate for us? Folks in law enforcement. I had plenty of folks in law enforcement who, even though I was a criminal defense lawyer, invariably I'd get a conversation and they'd be like, yeah, so the cop actually, when he pulled me over, told me to call you. <laughs> I'm thinking, the cop who wrote the ticket told you to call me. This is awesome. I love this. What are we doing to thank those people? What are we doing to thank the doctors who refer to us? Okay. Check with your local rules. There sometimes are the opportunities to give gifts to those type of folks, and it's worth considering. But at the very least, thank them. Show your appreciation. The moral of the story, Jason, and you can tell I got a lot of ideas about this, there are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of things you can do to create remarkable experiences at each of these eight phases of the journey. My gut instinct is just that quick run-through 
has given, hopefully, our listeners a couple of ideas of things they could at least consider doing, if not try to implement tomorrow. That was an incredible download, first. Secondly, for listeners, you got some expert insights into how to really get going on this stuff. But yeah, I, I would encourage everyone to, to read the book because doing that with my team and talking through all these stages and what we could do to improve our customers' experience is really how you get at the heart of understanding your clients and understanding ultimately you know, what you can do to move the needle to make sure that the customer experience is as good as it possibly can be. And, you know, for lawyers, uh, this is this is an area that I, I think is really could profoundly impact your practices as plaintiff personal injury lawyers because of the dependency on how that client walks away from their experience at your firm. So Joe, you, you and I were recently at a conference together uh, and there was a discussion about AI and chat GPT, which honestly I had never heard chat GPT before that conference. So I guess I was may maybe a bit behind the curve, but I'm wondering about your thoughts on how to leverage technology to improve customer experience with law firms and what's coming down the pike seems like you know, automation of case status is one really easy one that you know you you could use a uh, case management software system that has the data scraped by AI or some type of technology to give clients more real time updates on what is going on with their case. But you know you talked about some things as an author that I I thought were really interesting about how this technology may change business. And uh, I'm just trying to think through how law firms may change and how this can help in the customer experience um, sense of it all as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that question, Jason. For folks that may not be familiar with chat GPT, and to be clear, my knowledge on this is less than a thimbleful. okay? This is a technology that people have thought about for years and talked about, oh, how AI is going to change the way we do business. In the last three to six months, we are seeing how quickly it is actually changing things with tools like ChatGPT or tools uh, in the uh, design space like MidJourney or DALI. There are a number of tools that are harnessing the power of machine learning, AI, automation, design, uh, messaging, speech, text, and combining all of them in really unique and powerful ways. Let me talk a little bit about how I think it's useful for folks to think about these type of interactions and then maybe give a few ideas of how this might be showing up in your practice sooner than you think. I have no problem with automation. I have no problem with using technology. As long as we're not using it as an, ex as an excuse to remove the humanity and the empathy from our communications. If you use a case management tool that scrapes the deadline, the timelines and the filings and things like that to be able to give your clients real-time updates as to where they are, that's great. But I want to be able to have a personal layer on top of that, that we explain that, that we pay attention if they're actually logging in to see that, that they understand what we're sending them, that it doesn't feel like it's been written by a lawyer. Here's the thing. When you think about giving status updates, 
I want you to compare yourself to Amazon. I don't want you to compare yourself to other law firms because, sorry, the bar on that comparison is pathetic. It's lying on the ground. I want you to compare yourself to Amazon. Here's what happens, at least for me, and I imagine it happens to most of you listening when you go on Amazon. You make the purchase, you hit buy, and you get a screen that says that your order is confirmed. You also get an email that your order is confirmed. If you've signed up for their text messaging opportunities or have the app, you also get a notification there that the order is confirmed. So you know that things are in process. Then we know that the order is being fulfilled. We get another message. Hey, it's being fulfilled. Then we know that it's been shipped. Then we get a message that it's out for delivery. Then we get a message that usually includes a photo of it sitting on our front porch having been delivered. That is increasingly the standard for what a human being on the planet thinks of as notifications of a decision to do business with someone from the point that the order was made till the product was delivered. It's visual. It's seamless. It comes in multiple formats. And my seven-year-old could read these messages and understand exactly what they mean. If that is the standard you apply to your updates for your clients, you'll be doing very well. Now, let's talk about how some of these technologies might be used in creative and hereto unforeseen ways. When you look at something like ChatGPT, one of the things you can do is you put in prompts and you ask it to, uh, you can ask it to write information. So for example, my uh, good friend Dan Gingas and I have a podcast all about customer and employee experience. We recently put in a chat, an, into ChatGPT, write an article about what it means to create a remarkable customer experience. That was the extent of the prompt. What we got was a 950-word essay with three different examples. I think there was one from Amazon, one from Apple, maybe one from Disney, with subheadings, with compelling language that moved you from one paragraph to the next, that when it was delivered, by the way, less than 30 seconds after we hit enter on the prompt, was ready to be published. This is the world we're living in. Now, imagine as a lawyer saying, write me a letter to a client that shows sympathy and empathy for the car accident they were just in and outlines a procedure for their court case that includes an initial offer from the insurance company, a rejection of that offer or a counteroffer, the rejection of the counteroffer, the filing of the lawsuit, a trial with a jury, and a verdict. We are not that far away from that type of thing producing a two- to three-page letter that, frankly, is probably better and more easily understood than the best writer in your firm could write. That's where we're moving towards. Now, am I saying that we're going to have all of that next week? No, but the way this is moving, it is probably not an unreasonable estimation that before the sun sets on 2023, you will be able to type something as simple as that as a prompt and get a beautiful two to three page letter that details the process that with another 15 to 20 minutes of review by a member of your staff could be personalized and customized to your firm's individual way of operating operating and be better than everything you're currently using today. Let's think on the image side. 
often in an image scenario in a personal injury case. When I was a kid growing up, my dad did some PI cases, and one of my jobs was to build the Lego diorama out of Legos of the car accident that would then be used as an exhibit in trial to show the jury how the cars were parked, how the accident happened. As a kid, this was great. As you might imagine, in the 1970s, 1980s, when we weren't doing these beautiful computer-generated accident recreations, the jury liked having something tangible in front of them that they could look at. It had a bit of a nostalgia play because it was Legos, and it really connected with the personal and emotional nature of what we were dealing with with. What is the AI version of this? Imagine being able to type in and say, what would it look like out the front window of a Toyota Corolla when there's four inches of snow on the ground, three inches of ice underneath that? It's 6 p.m. I can't see. I'm 100 yards away from the stoplight. I can't see whether it's red or green. And there's a truck in the intersection. You could type that in and get 15, 20, 30 different beautiful artistically rendered illustrations of what that would look and feel like for free instantly. This is going to change the landscape around how information is presented and consumed for every human being on the planet in the next decade. But even more importantly, you're going to start to feel this in the next year. This isn't something that, oh, is the stuff of, you know, Minority Report and The Matrix and The Future. This isn't science fiction. This is practical reality today. If you want to get a chance, just go on Instagram. I know a lot of you are not big fans of Instagram. That's okay. You're serious professionals. You're on LinkedIn. You're not on Instagram. Okay, that's fine. But just go on to Instagram or ask your kids or your nieces or nephews to go on Instagram and search up some of the accounts that are just showing the visuals that are coming out of AI. I promise you in under an hour, your mind will be blown. And if you're not thinking already of all the ways this could impact how you present the facts of a case in front of a jury, in front of a judge, in front of an insurance company, you're missing a huge opportunity. Love it. That, that just where your mind went, the, the idea of creating something written to a client that is able to convey the empathy piece. I, I had not really thought about that. That's, that's a really interesting way of making sure that the communications are thoughtful in that regard. Cause I think sometimes that that's, that is overlooked. I did, I took a paragraph that I had written on a topic. I do a lot of writing as a subject matter expert and said, write me an essay in the tone of this on this subject and was absolutely floored by how quickly it wrote something that I would say I would write, like the thoughts and how it was constructed. So it is, it's amazingly fast and crazy, crazy accurate. So there's certainly going to be a lot of um, opportunities to deploy that technology, I think, for law firms as we as we see that technology become more and more widespread and perfected. Um, before we wrap up, two more questions. This next one's a little bit long, and I think we, we've sort of talked through some of this, but I, I just want to make sure that we, we cover it as much as we can. One is 
navigating client expectations because I've seen so many instances in catastrophic cases where there's these massive life care plans could be a $50 million figure, $75, $100 million figure what's needed uh, to take care of this person to the future, yet coverage is only a million dollars. Or, you know, I know in my case, I always felt it was worth policy limits given the severity of the injuries I suffered, but at mediation, my insurance company, because the guy who hit me basically had no coverage, so I was going after my own underinsured motorist coverage, you know, they were only willing to offer an amount under the, the policy limits. But I knew from experience that likely I would have to go to trial to get anything more, but it was still incredibly emotionally for me to ultimately accept, which I did, what they were offering. But the average personal injury client doesn't have any kind of understanding like I did. So what do you do to manage that? Because you're not getting what you thought for injuries um, that you suffered is going to be typically a really bad, ultimately, customer experience if they haven't been prepared for that. And, and in our world, too, for example, we, you know, law firms work with us to resolve healthcare liens that are asserted against the settlement. Well, sometimes the client's not educated about that, and that can hold up settlement at the back end because, you know, there there's negotiation that has to be done to resolve those. That causes client dissatisfaction, um, and, and that, you know, can become very problematic. And this idea that, you know, personal injury cases are highly emotional, there's high stakes, you know, the, the failure, you know, to, to receive a settlement or get a verdict might mean that, you know, an injury victim doesn't get the care they need to live. You know, how do you incorporate the realization that, you know, um, the experience for the injury victim with your firm should be you know, similar to, you know, if, if it were your child that was injured or if it was your parent that was killed due to medical malpractice mistakes that were made in, in surgery, I, you know, how, how do you take all of that and make sure that given what's at stake, you're, you're doing the best you can? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really powerful and important question, Jason, and I appreciate you asking. I think the... The best way, in my experience, to help someone understand something for which they have no context and probably never will is to draw some type of an analogy or comparison to something they do have context for. Let me use an example of uh, the greatest place on earth, Disneyland, right? Disney World. If you go to Disneyland with your family... As the parent, you are thinking, I want to create magical moments. I want to create memories. I want to have my kids love every minute of this. And I want to be able to look back on this for years to come that it was absolutely ideal, a perfect day in the Magic Kingdom. I've had the pleasure and the fortune, good fortune and opportunity to go to Disneyland several times. There are always moments where I find myself thinking, I'm not exactly sure we should have come today, <laughs> right? Where it's just like, this is not working as well as I would have liked. The line is really long right now. Oh, the ride that my kid wants to go on is closed. 
or we never get on all the rides as many times as we want to before the park closes, or, oh my gosh, the kids could use a nap right now, or why is the food so expensive, or why do I have to wait in this line again, right? All these different feelings. I think the best thing we can do as personal injury lawyers is to, in the early conversations, explain not only what the process is going to be, but try to imagine and articulate, based on our experience and other clients we've worked with, what the client is going to experience emotionally. So, for example, when I used to sit with clients in a personal injury context, I would say, let's be abundantly clear. I don't think we're ever going to get you all the money you want. Because here's the deal. Even if I ask you what number you want to get today, two years from now, that number is going to be bigger. How do I know that? Because you're human. I'm human. I'm going to want it to be bigger. We want it to be as big as possible, but we need to acknowledge that it's probably not going to be as big as you want it. And we need to acknowledge that today. Number two, we need to talk about the fact that as soon as they start making offers, it is going to change what you think that number should be. Because if you want a million dollars and they come and they offer policy limits of a million dollars, you're going to think, well, geez, they were really quick to offer that. We should get at least two. Or if we want a million dollars and they come and they say, we're going to give you 50,000 you're going to have one of two thoughts. Either we got to keep chasing that million or what is more likely you're going to say, oh, for the insult of that offer, I now want 1.5 million because you're so insulting me with that low offer. These are natural feelings to have. You're going to have them. When you have them and you experience this, I'm going to say, remember on our first day when I told you you would experience this? This is where we are right now. What you are paying me for is to keep the compass focused in the right direction, which is not how much money do you want, but how much do we need to get you to as close as possible of the life that you need and want to have going forward, given this intervention into your life that was neither expected nor planned. That's how we change the conversation and manage the expectations. And then we remind them of that as we go through the process. We call out what they're going to feel. When they do feel that, we acknowledge it. We don't judge it. How many times as a personal injury lawyer have you gotten irritated, listeners, to somebody who said, I want a million dollars, and you get them a million dollars, and they go, well, actually, I was thinking 1.5. And we're like, you greedy sons of guns. No, they're human. You would do the same thing. You've done the same thing. That's the difference between having empathy and being caught in a formulaic presentation of, okay, and next is the counteroffer, and next is the trial, and next is the verdict or the settlement. You know, that's what I think we need to do more. Beautiful. Uh, last question. So uh, I ask this of every guest that appears on the podcast because trial lawyer view, uh, what's your view as a lawyer, but also as a customer experience expert. So, uh, talk about whatever you want here as we wrap up. 
I appreciate the question. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show, and I so appreciate everybody listening in. I think we live at a remarkable time in human history. We live at a time where the bar for client experience is lying on the ground. You don't have to do much to be a better human and stand out in this profession. That is not a dig against lawyers. I could say this about every industry on the planet. There are huge opportunities available to us. The question is, are you going to take them? Are you going to find out ways to hold your client's hand more thoroughly and more comfortably? Are you going to find ways to show more empathy and care for your clients, even when you're caught in the throes of the 78th deposition or the 34th phone call or the fifth demand letter or whatever it may be? Are you going to be able to anchor back to that empathy? Are you going to be able to deliver the kind of remarkable client experience that your website and your advertisements claim that you're going to be able to deliver? And are you living up to that and checking in on that on a regular basis? But even potentially more importantly, if not equally importantly, what is the experience you're creating for your employees and the people who do business with you? Because let's be candid, those are your clients too. And they're going to be with you a lot longer than one case, at least we hope, right? These are the people that you need to be showing the same level of care and consideration and empathy for what's going on in their lives as you do for your clients. My first book was called Never Lose a Customer Again. My next book is called Never Lose an Employee Again. It doesn't come out until June of 2023. If you want a preview of what the book's going to be, I'll give it to you in one sentence. Go back and listen to this entire podcast. And every time I said the word client, replace it with the word employee. Are you walking your employees through the same eight phases? Are you using the same six tools to communicate with? These are the opportunities that are available to us. I know if you are a listener to this show, you are the kind of person who is not satisfied with where you're at. You want to take your practice to the next level. You want to take your personal life to the next level. You want to take your personal and professional development to the next level. I would posit that focusing on client experience and employee experience is a rich mother load of opportunity that you continue can continue to mine for many years to come that will not only increase the bottom line of your business and increase the connection you have with your clients and your employees, but it will help you anchor back to some of those feelings you originally had when you decided to go to law school because you wanted to be part of the solution in our society. I'll end on this. Lawyers take a lot of gruff. We take a lot of cheap shots from people in the bars, in the restaurants, in TV shows, etc. People often talk about Shakespeare and his famous line where he says, first things first, kill all the lawyers. The problem is the typical person who quotes that line from Shakespeare does not know the context for that line. The context for that line was as following. There was a group of people sitting around talking about how do you destroy a society? How do you overturn civilization? And the answer was, well, the first thing first, you kill all the lawyers because they're the ones here who are designed to protect how we live. Personal injury plaintiff's attorneys, while they get a terrible rap in so many scenarios, are crucial 
I so appreciate the work you're doing in the world. I want you to get the credit you deserve. I want you to get the accolades you deserve. But more importantly, I want you to feel good at the deepest level of your core about the profession and the practice and the work and the mission that you have decided to devote your careers to. I wish you all the best, and I trust that you're going to be able to do it. Well said. That uh, that idea that trial lawyers who help protect us from corporations that cut corners or defend us after we've been injured um, and, and you know, our warriors in the courtroom to secure compensation, that, that function, you, you really never realize it as much until it happens to you. And I, I know from personal experience that that is a, a very noble um, thing for someone to do to, to stand up and, and represent someone that um, has been through something life-changing and altering and, uh, how you, how you just expressed that was, was awesome. Love it. Uh, so if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? And what's the best way to get your book to yeah, I appreciate that, Jason. Uh, the book, is, the current book is called Never Lose a Customer Again. It's available wherever you buy books. There's a hard copy version if you like reading it physically. There's an ebook edition. If you've enjoyed listening to my voice, there's an audiobook version, uh, and I will read the book to you. As a preview, there's 46 case studies that go across all the eight phases, so you'll get lots of ideas of things you can apply. The next book is called Never Lose an Employee Again. It's also going to be available in all of those formats. You can pre-order it or grab it today. I uh, would love it if you check that out as well. If you want to really dive into this stuff, I encourage you to come to my website, joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like a baby kangaroo or a five-year-old you know. Joey Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A. Like the camping equipment, but no relation, joeycoleman.com. When you come to that website, you'll see the opportunity to sign up for the first 100 days implementation kit. This is a free PDF that outlines all of the eight phases. It gives you worksheets that you can go over with your team to answer and fill out how you might apply these eight phases of the client journey to your specific practice. And I'll make an offer that I don't normally make, but because Jason's awesome, because these listeners are awesome, and because we started our conversation about a book club, I've put together a PDF of prompting questions for a book club. So if you decide to buy a copy of the book and go through this as a book club with your whole team, which I highly recommend, and I appreciate you recommending it as well, Jason, send me a message, real simple, joey at joeycoleman.com, you know. Same same URL, just Joey at the front at and say, Joey, I heard you on the awesome trial lawyers podcast. I want to be able to do this with my team. I will send you the prompting questions, which will be a guide for you to navigate through this conversation with your team while you read the book. Thanks for that offer, Joey. Appreciate it. And thanks for joining me today on Trial Lawyer Review. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at trialreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.